Section 29 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 17. The Great Revenge. Part 1. The Commune cost Paris 14,000 lives. 8,000 persons were executed, 6,000 were killed in open fight. Before the siege, Paris had contained two million and a quarter of inhabitants. She had not half that number during the Commune, notwithstanding the multitude of small proprietors and peasants who flocked thither from devastated homes. Monday, May 29, found the city in the hands of the Versaillais. The provisional government and its parliament were victorious. The army, defeated at Sedan, had conquered its insurgent countrymen. All that remained of the Commune was wreck and devastation. The Tuileries, the Column of the Place Vendôme, the Treasury, the Palace of the Legion of Honour, and the Hôtel de Ville, or City Hall, were destroyed, besides two theatres, the Law Courts, or Palais de Justice, the offices of the Council of State and the Court of Accounts, the State Safe Deposit, Caisse des Dépôts et de Consignation, the Library of the Louvre, the Manufactory of Gobelin's Tapestry, the Prefecture of Police, eight whole streets, and innumerable scattered private houses. The vengeance of the soldiers as they made their way from street to street, from barricade to barricade, was savage and indiscriminate. Every man arrested whose hands were black with powder was carried to a street corner or a courtyard and summarily shot. Of course many wholly innocent persons perished, for the troops of the Commune had been of two kinds, the National Guard and the Volunteers. Most of the latter were devils incarnate. Among them were the Vengeurs de Florence who were foremost in executions, and bands called by such names as Les Enfants du Père Duchesne et Les Enfants Perdus. The National Guards were of three classes, genuine communists, workmen whose pay was their only resource for the support of their families, and pressed men, forced to fight, of whom there were a great many. I have before me three narratives written by gentlemen who either suffered or participated in the great revenge. One was a resident in Paris who had taken no part either for or against the Commune. One had served it on compulsion as a soldier. And one was an officer of the Versailles army, who on May 21 led his troops through a breach into the city, and fought on till May 27, when all was over. It seems to me that such accounts of personal experience in troubled times give a far more vivid picture of events than a mere formal narration. I therefore quote them in this chapter in preference to telling the story in my own words. The first is by Count Joseph Orsi, whose visit to Raoul Rigaud's office at the Prefecture of Police has already been told. He was left unmolested by the Commune, most probably because in early life he had been a member of those secret societies in Italy to which Louis-Napoleon himself belonged. He says, quote, On May 22, Paris was entering the last stage of its death struggle. The army of Versailles had entered it from four different points. The fight was desperate. Barricades were erected in almost every street. Prisoners on both sides were shot in scores at the street corners. Three of the largest houses in the Rue Royale, where I lived, were on fire. Soldiers of the regular army were beginning to appear in our quarter, and early on Thursday, May 25, I heard the bell of my apartment ring violently. I opened it, and found myself face to face with twelve voltigeurs of the Versailles army commanded by a lieutenant who ordered the soldiers to search the house and shoot anyone wearing a uniform. He told me that he must occupy my drawing-room, which looked on the Rue Royale, for the purpose of firing on the insurgents, who were holding a barricade where the Rue du Faubourg Saint-Honoré joins the Rue Royale. My wife was seated on her sofa. He ordered her to leave the room. 
she resisted and was removed by force. The soldiers then began firing on the insurgents from the windows. The insurgents had possession of the upper floors of some houses facing mine, and fired with such effect that the soldiers were driven from their position. The officer withdrew his men from the drawing-room and asked for a map of Paris, for he did not know exactly where he was. I made a friend of him by pointing to my pictures, every one of which proved me to be a friend and follower of the emperor. He asked me if I had any wine to give his men, who had had nothing to eat or drink since the previous night. While they were partaking of bread and wine in the kitchen, and I was talking with the officer in the dining-room, a shot fired from across the street struck the officer on the temple. He fell as if struck dead. His soldiers rushed in and seized me. They were about to shoot me on the spot, when luckily my servant, with water and vinegar, brought the officer to his senses, so that he could raise his hand and make a sign to the soldiers, who had me fast by both arms, to keep quiet. By God's mercy the officer had only been stunned. He had been hit, but not by a bullet, but by a piece of brick forced out of the wall by a shot. I was released, but the soldiers were far from satisfied, believing their officer had accepted this explanation only to spare my life. They left my house at nightfall, and afterwards the fire of the insurgents became so hot that the front wall of the house fell in, and everything I had was smashed to pieces. The next morning, May 26, as I was searching for some valuable papers among the ruins, two men in plain clothes entered and ordered me to follow them to the prefecture of police, temporarily located on the Quai d'Orsay. As Paris was by this time completely under military rule, I was examined by an officer. I told him that, not knowing for what purpose I was wanted, I had left my papers at home, and was sent under charge of two men to fetch them. I was also given to understand that I had better make any arrangements I thought necessary for my wife, which led me to think it probable I should be shot or imprisoned. It was a reign of terror of a new kind, of which I could never have expected to be a victim. As we were crossing the Place de la Concorde, we saw half a dozen soldiers who had seized four Federals on the barricade close by. A struggle was going on for life or death. The soldiers, having at last the upper hand, strove to drag the Federals to the wall of the Ministry of Marine to be shot. The poor wretches were imploring for mercy, and refused to stand erect. Seeing this, the soldiers shot them one after the other as they lay upon the ground. I was finally disposed of, in company with other prisoners, in some large stables and carriage-houses. Some of us were in plain clothes, some in uniform. We were all packed together so closely that there was not even the possibility of lying down upon the stones. Bread and water alone were given us. On the approach of night we were shut in like cattle, with the intimation that any attempt to revolt or escape would be followed by instant execution. The next morning, May 27, at dawn, ten soldiers, with an officer at their head, began calling by name eight or ten prisoners at a time from one of our places of confinement, and they were dragged away, God knows where. Utter dejection and despair were depicted on the face of every man, especially on those who had been seized on the barricades or in uniform. That afternoon I was called out, being part of a batch of nine prisoners, mostly in plain clothes. On that day rain fell incessantly. We thought, as we marched through the mud and drizzle, that we were going to be shot en masse without any further trial. But on reaching the Champ de Mars, our escort was ordered to take us to the barracks that are near it. There our names were taken down by an officer, and we were locked up in a room where seven other prisoners had already been confined. It would be too horrible to relate the filth and closeness of that place, which might have held seven or eight people, and we were sixteen. There was a board fitted between two walls where seven people could lie. 
this was appropriated before we got there we were forced to stand up or to lie down on the stones which were damp and inexpressibly dirty we remained thus for two days on the twenty ninth the door opened at seven a m eight soldiers were drawn up outside the sergeant called out one of the prisoners named lefebvre who wore a national guard's uniform the poor fellow stepped out between the two lines of soldiers and the door closed on him he was taken before the colonel who was instructed to examine the prisoners and had the discretionary power of ordering them to be shot on the spot or of sending them to versailles to appear before the superior commission by whom they were either set at liberty or sentenced to transportation poor lefebvre was not heard of again we thought we heard a brisk volley of musketry in the large courtyard but we had been so accustomed to such noises that it did not attract general attention later in the day another prisoner was called out in the same manner and he came back no more this time the noise of the discharge was distinct and made us alive to the imminence of our fate on the third prisoner being called out he refused to go two soldiers had to take him by force he fought desperately for his life the door was shut we had not long to wait the discharge of musketry re-echoed in our cell and caused within it such a scene of despair as baffles description next day four men were taken out and executed which reduced our number to nine by this time we had recovered from the shots and heeded little what was going to take place as every one of us had bidden adieu to this world and made his peace with god on may thirty one our door was opened again twelve soldiers were drawn up before it we were all ordered out we thought we were going to be shot en masse to make quicker work of us to my amazement we saw a large column of about four hundred prisoners four abreast between two lines of grenadiers evidently we were intended to form the last contingent to it the soldiers having been drawn up in two long lines on both sides of the column an officer drew his sword and standing up on a wine hogshead shouted soldiers load arms this being done he added fire on any prisoner who attempts to revolt or escape we then took the road to the western railroad where we were put into cattle vans and goods vans with scarcely room to breathe and reached versailles about six p m a detachment of soldiers escorted us to satory the column marched into the artillery depot and the gates were closed i happened to be the right-hand man of the four last prisoners in the column so that i stood only three or four yards from the officer in command of the place who stood looking at the prisoners with his arms folded and his officers beside him i saw him staring at me which i attributed to my being the best dressed man of the party presently he walked slowly up to me and measuring me from head to foot with what i took to be a diabolical sneer cried ho ho the ribbon of the legion of honour you got it i suppose on the barricades with that i felt a sharp pull at my coat quick as thought i brought my hand down and caught his firmly as he was trying to tear the ribbon from my breast in my agitated state of mind i had not been aware i was wearing a coat that had it on you may shoot me captain i said but you shall not wrest that ribbon from me where did you get it the prince president of the republic louis napoleon gave it to me when on september twenty three eighteen fifty three how is it then that you were arrested was it on a barricade no captain in my own apartment it is not likely i should fight for the commune after having been a devoted friend of the emperor for forty years your name count joseph orsi he looked at me again and having joined his officers to whom he related what had taken place he turned round and in a loud voice said to me come out of the ranks then seeing a gendarme close by he said do not lose sight of this prisoner End quote. 
For two days the captain kept Count Orsi in his office, and encouraged him to write to any friends he might have in Versailles. Count Orsi named M. Grévy, afterwards president, as having been for years his legal adviser, and he wrote a few lines to various other persons. But there were no posts, and in the confusion of Versailles at that moment there seemed little chance that his notes would reach their destination. Two days later an order came to Satory to send all prisoners to Versailles, and the kind-hearted captain was forced to return Count Orsi to the column of his fellow-prisoners. At Versailles they were shut up in the wine-cellars of the palace, forty-five feet underground. The prisoners confined there were the very dregs and scum of the insurrection. The cellars had only some old straw on the floors, left there by the Prussians. There were six hundred men confined in this place, and the torture they endured from the close air, the filth, and the impossibility of lying down at night was terrible. Count Orsi was ten days in this horrible prison. At last, one evening, he heard his name called. His release had come. On going to the door, he was taken before a superior officer, who expressed surprise and regret at the mistake that had been committed, and at once set him at liberty. A brave little boy, charged with one of his notes, had persevered through all kinds of difficulties in putting it into the hands of the English lady to whom it was addressed. This lady and the Italian ambassador had effected Count Orsi's release. He was ill with low fever for some weeks, in consequence of the bad air he had breathed during his confinement. Subsequently he discovered that personal spite had caused his arrest as a friend of the Commune. My next account of those days is drawn from the experience of the Marquis de Compiègne, one of the Versailles officers. He was travelling in Florida when the Franco-Prussian war broke out, but hastened home at once to join the army. He fought at Sedan and was taken prisoner to Germany, but returned in time to act against the Commune. Afterwards he became an explorer in the Sudan, and in 1877 was killed in a duel. On the 20th of May, news having reached Versailles that the first detachment of regular troops had made their way into Paris, M. de Compiègne hastened to join his battalion, which he had that morning quitted on a few hours' leave. As they approached the Bois de Boulogne at midnight, the sky over Paris seemed red with flame. They halted for some hours, the men sleeping, the officers amusing themselves by guessing conundrums. But as day dawned, they entered Paris through a breach in the defences. The young officer says, quote, I shall never forget the sight. The fortifications had been riddled with balls. The casemates were broken in. All over the ground were strewn haversacks, packets of cartridges, fragments of muskets, scraps of uniforms, tin cans that had held preserved meats, ammunition wagons that had been blown up, mangled horses, men dying and dead, artillerymen cut down at their guns, broken gun carriages, disabled siege guns, with their wheels splashed red from pools of blood, but still pointed at our positions, while around were the still smoking walls of ruined private houses. A company of infantry was guarding about six hundred prisoners, who with folded arms and lowering faces were standing among the ruins. They were of all ages, grades, and uniforms, boys of fifteen and old men, general officers covered with gold lace and beggars in rags, avengers of Florence, children of Père Duchesne, chasseurs and zouaves, lascars, turcos, and hussars. We halted a little farther in the city. We were very hungry, but all the shops were closed. I got some milk, but some of my comrades, who wanted wine, made a raid into the cellar of an abandoned house, and were jumped upon by an immense negro dressed like a turco, whom they took for the devil. Glad as we all were to be in Paris, the sight as we marched on was most melancholy. Fighting seemed going on in all directions, especially near the Tuileries and the Place de la Concorde. The Arch of Triumph was not seriously injured. 
On the top of it were two mortars, and the tricolored flag had been replaced by the drapeau rouge. Detachments were all the time passing us with prisoners. They were thrust for safe-keeping wherever space could be found. I am sorry to say that they were cruelly insulted, and as usual those who had fought least had the foulest tongues. There was one party of deserters still in uniform, with their coats turned inside out. I saw one of the prettiest girls I have ever seen, among the prisoners. She was about fourteen, dressed as a cantinière, with a red scarf round her waist. A smile was on her lips, and she carried herself proudly. That morning, May 22, I saw nobody shot. I think they wanted to take all the prisoners they could to Versailles as trophies of victory. About one o'clock we received orders to march, and went down the boulevard Malzerbe. All the inhabitants seemed to be at their windows, and in many places we were loudly welcomed. It was strange to me to be marching with arms in my hands, powder-stained and dirty, along streets I had so often trodden gay, careless, and in search of pleasure. On the march we passed the Carmelite convent, where my sister was at school, and as we halted I was able to run in a moment and see her. Only an hour or two before the nuns had had a communist picket in their yard. We marched on to the Parc Monceau, once Louis-Philippe's private pleasure-garden. There our men were shooting prisoners who had been taken with arms in their hands. I saw fifteen men fall, and then a woman. That night volunteers were called for to defend an outlying barricade which had been taken from the insurgents, and of which they were endeavouring to regain possession. Our captain led a party to this place, and in a tall house that overlooked the barricade he stationed three of us. There, lying flat on our faces on a billiard-table, we exchanged many shots with the enemy. A number of National Guards came up and surrendered to us as prisoners. As soon as one presented himself with the butt of his musket in the air, we made him come under the window, where two of us stood ready to fire in case of treachery, while the third took him to the lieutenant. In the course of the night I was slightly wounded in the ear. A surgeon pinned it up with two black pins. It was now May 23, an ever-memorable day. We were pushing on into Paris and were to attack Montmartre, but first we had to make sure of the houses in our rear. Then began that terrible fighting in the streets, when every man fights hand to hand, when one must jump, revolver in hand, into dark cellars, or rush up narrow staircases with an enemy who knows the ground, lying in wait. Two or three shots well aimed come from one house, and each brings down a comrade. Exasperated, we break in the door and rush through the chambers. The crime must be punished, the murderers are still on the spot. But there are ten men in the house. Each swears that he is innocent. Then each soldier has to take upon himself the office of a judge. He looks to see if the gun of each man has been discharged recently, if the blouse and the citizen's trousers have not been hastily drawn over a uniform. Death and life are in his hands. No one will ever call him to account for his decision. Women and children fall at his feet, imploring pity. Through all the house resound sobs, groans, and the reports of rifles. At the corner of every street lie the bodies of men shot, or stand prisoners about to be executed. I was thankful when the moment came to attack the heights of Montmartre, and to engage in open warfare. General Pradier, our brigadier-general, marched at our head, greatly exposed because of the gold lace on his uniform. An insurgent, whom we had taken prisoner, suddenly sprang from his guards, seized the general's horse, and presented at him a revolver that he had hidden in his belt. The general, furious, cried, "'Shoot him! Shoot him!' But we dared not, they were too close together. Suddenly the man sprang back, gained the street, and though twenty of us fired in haste at once, every ball missed him. Leaping like a goat, he made his escape. The general was very angry. 
Step by step we made our way, slowly, it is true, but never losing ground. About two hundred yards from Montmartre were tall houses and wood-yards where many insurgents had taken refuge. These sent among us a shower of balls. We had sharp fighting in this place, but succeeded in gaining the position. Then we halted for about two hours to make preparations for an attack upon the heights. Some of us, while we halted, fired at the enemy, some raided houses and made prisoners, some went in search of something to eat, but seldom found it. I was fortunate, however, while taking some prisoners to the provost-marshal, to be able to buy a dozen salt herrings, four pints of milk, nine loaves of bread, some prunes, some barley-sugar, and a pound of bacon. I took all I could get, and from the colonel downward all my comrades were glad to get a share of my provisions. The heights at Montmartre had been riddled by the fire from Mont Valérien. Sometimes a shell from our mortars would burst in the enemy's trenches, when a swarm of human beings would rush out of their holes and run like rabbits in a warren. The punishment of the unfortunate, as well as of the guilty, was very severe. Their imprisonment in the great orangery at Versailles, where thousands of orange-trees are stored during the winter, involved frightful suffering. A commission was appointed to try the prisoners, but its work was necessarily slow. It was more than a year before some of the captured leaders of the commune met their fate. Those condemned were shot at the buttes of Satory an immense amphitheatre holding twenty thousand people, where the emperor, on one of his fêtes, in the early days of his marriage, gave a great free hippodrome performance, to the intense gratification of his lieges. Some prisoners were transported to New Caledonia. Cayenne had been given up as too unhealthy, and this lonely island in the far Pacific Ocean had been fixed upon as the Botany Bay for political offenders. Some of the leaders in the council of the commune were shot in the streets. Raoul Rigaud was of this number. Some were executed at Satory, some escaped to England, Switzerland, and America. Some were sent to New Caledonia, but were amnestied, and returned to France to be thorns in the side of every government up to the present hour. Some are now legislators in the French chamber, some editors and proprietors of newspapers. Among those shot in the heat of vengeance at Satory was Valin, who had vainly tried to save the hostages. De la Chuse, in despair at the cowardice of his associates, quietly sought a barricade when affairs grew desperate, and standing on it with his arms folded, was shot down. Cluseret, who had real talent as an artist, had an exhibition a few years since of his pictures in Paris, and writing to a friend concerning it, speaks thus of himself, quote, You can tell me the worst. When a man has passed through a life full of vicissitudes as I have done, during seventeen years of which I have seen many campaigns, fighting sometimes three hundred and sixty-five days in a year, or marching and counter-marching, without tents or anything, when one has been three times outlawed and under sentence of death, when one has known much of imprisonment and exile, when one has suffered from ingratitude, calumny, and poverty, one is pretty well seasoned and can bear to hear the truth." One thousand and thirty-one women were among the prisoners at Versailles and Satory. Many of them were women of the worst character. Eight hundred and fifty were set at liberty. Four were sent to an insane asylum, but doctors declared that nearly every woman who fought in the streets for the commune was more or less insane. The most important of all captures was that of Rochefort. He had been a leading man in the council of the commune, but was so great a favourite with men of literature, besides having strong friends and an old schoolfellow in Thiers' cabinet, that he escaped with transportation to the southern seas. On May 20, when he saw that the end of the commune was at hand, he procured from the delegate for foreign affairs passports for himself and his secretary. It is thought that the delegate, enraged at Rochefort's purpose of deserting his colleagues, betrayed him to the Prussians who held the fort of Vincennes. 
the prussians sent word to the frontier and there the fugitives were arrested rochefort had no luggage but in his pocket was a great deal of miscellaneous jewellery a copy of monte cristo and some fine cigars escorted by uhlans he was brought to saint-germain and delivered over to the versailles government for a long time his fate hung in the balance and it seemed improbable that even the exertions of m thiers the president and jules favre the minister for foreign affairs could save him End of section 29